I firmly believe that when we believe in the vision of where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, like when we have that kind of foresight of seeing and we believe in that, we're not meant to know the odds. Like the odds just feed our doubts. And I didn't know that it was really was that competitive or hard. I just knew this is what I was supposed to do. So I just kind of stayed true to having that vision. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is a Jericho-rated U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopter pilot, Elizabeth McCormick. Elizabeth flew Air Assault Command and Control, Top Secret Intelligence and VIP Transport missions with the 10th Mountain Division, U.S. Army, including service in support of humanitarian mission in Kosovo. Transitioned from her military service to corporate management, Elizabeth took her experience from the front line to the boardroom to become an international contract negotiator and commodity manager in global corporations' supply chains. What started as an opportunity to share her military experience for free in her local community ultimately propelled Elizabeth to a career as an in-demand motivational keynote speaker, delivering over 100 speaking engagements every year. Those keynotes focus on leadership, safety, sales, change management, professional development, and personal growth. What I loved about our conversation was Elizabeth's mindset and determination to go after opportunities that were in front of her. Strap yourself in and let's jump right in. Well, Elizabeth McCormick, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, you joined the US Army. Tell us about that. Where did that all come from? What was that catalyst? (laughs) So, I was an unemployed military wife with three college degrees, and I was working in a pizza place because we were stationed at at a military base that just had no jobs. There was nothing there for me. And I was miserable. One night I looked at what I call my starter husband and (laughs) I looked at him and I thought, well, wait, if he could be in the army, why can't I? So I decided to join the army. I wanted the coolest job possible. Didn't know what that was. So I asked around. I did a lot of research. I asked around and everybody said it was being a helicopter pilot. So I said, okay, I'll do that. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a story I haven't heard before. That's not the usual story of somebody that so was it was it a childhood dream to serve or any history of family in the in the military? No. So my father was in my father was in Vietnam time frame. Um, he didn't see combat. He worked in a hospital. They found out he could type, so he was typing medical records and letters and things like that. Yeah. So he I never saw combat, but it still wasn't a good time to be in the service then, right? Yeah. No one had really said thank you for your service to our Vietnam vets. And I hope they feel more appreciated now than they did then. But my dad really didn't talk about it. It wasn't a big thing. They both my parents went back to college while I was in my, you know, from the age of eight to the age of 12, they were both in college while working full time jobs. So I saw the value of education. So I'd 
gone that route myself and varied from being an architect was my big thing. I wanted to be an architect or architectural engineer or do something with a combined art and mathematics and engineering. There were my three degrees of study, areas of study I was in. And the thought when I married the starter husband, he was being stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. And I thought, oh, that's great. University of Texas at Austin an hour and a half away has one of the best architectural engineering schools in the country. So yay. Like to me, it was like, there it is. It's all there. And then at the very last minute, they changed his orders to Fort Polk, Louisiana, which had nothing, (laughs) nothing there. So no colleges, no education. We didn't have online education then like we do now. So it was literally, I was overqualified or they were afraid I was going to take a job as a military spouse and leave in anything I applied for work-wise other than working in a pizza place. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty miserable (laughs) and not intentional. So in terms of that time in your life, who were your leadership heroes in or out of the the service? You know, I, I would love to say like, here they were. I, I really wasn't. I, most of my studies had been academic. Yeah not personal or professional development. So I was studying like my degree in mathematics, you know, was studying the mathematician, Stephen Hawking and influences like that. And my study of an art for an architecture, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright and a lot of the classic and masters in the arts that I studied. So I didn't, didn't really have like what we would consider now to be self-help or professional development heroes like I do now. Back then, it, it was more like academics, the best word for it. Didn't really have, I mean, I was 23 years old, right? Mm. So 23 years old, I didn't really have a level of self-awareness of personal development as much as it was career development. Yeah. Was your father an influence on your leadership or thinking about that? Yeah, my dad, both my parents, really, the fact that they were self-aware enough to go back to school, like parents, full-time job, and then they said, it's still not enough. Like my dad went and got a business degree and my mom had an account, went back to school and got an accounting degree. And and then during that time, they also got divorced. So they were originally going to help each other. Right. And then it didn't work out that way, but they both like cared enough about their future that they knew what they were doing and where they were, wasn't going to be enough. And so I think from that, that kind of gave me that kind of quest for more than what I was currently in. Yeah. I mean, the people like that, it's it's that values that you get from them, isn't it? It's almost like osmosis. So you get those values from the people that nurture you, I guess, early in life. Yeah, I definitely had a, a big value instilled of education yeah. and yeah. knowing like where you're going and having that kind of development of your own potential in there. Yeah. To me, again, I saw it all as from the academic point of view and the college point of view. And what I've learned since then is that it's really never ends, yeah. right? So it's about learning every single day from the situations you're in and the people you're around. And I mean, now with podcasts and there's so much access to information more so than ever before. Yeah. So you joined the U.S. Army. You got a bit of exposure because you're a military spouse. But what was it like really being on the inside and particularly through those early years of training? What was the pathway to that solo Black Hawk flight? (laughs) So the hardest part, so once I I did a lot of research because I wanted to do it the right way, and there's several different pathways that you could take to become a helicopter pilot in the Army. You could go commissioned officer. And so commissioned officer, like whether 
So like, oh, I had enough college, I could go straight in as an officer. So that was one option. And then you could go enlisted and then try to go OCS. And that option, like they would pay back my student loans from college. So there were some things with that we looked at. And then, but when I really talked to officers and pilots, they all recommended I do the third option, which was Warrant Officer Candidate School and Warrant Officer Flight Training Program, which they affectionately called high school to flight school. Okay. So it was like the fastest path to flying, but also a guaranteed spot because with both the green to gold enlisted to commissioned and even going straight in commissioned officer, those two programs, there was no guarantee I would get aviation. It's all needs of the military, needs of the army. So I wasn't interested in not having a guarantee, right? <laughs> so for me, I looked at it and said, okay, this is, this is the guarantee. So I literally went in high school to flight school. So base, there's a huge application process besides the flight physical and the testing and skills testing. There was also a promote, like basically a promotion board where you're in front of a, other officers and have to interview for the role and get assessed for the role. And there's a scoring and things with that. And there was a physical fitness and capability test and there's all that. And then it goes to the Pentagon for selection board. And it's all determined on how many spots they have. And so the first month when my packet went to the Pentagon for that selection board, they had no spots. And that's one of my two boards I was allowed to be in front of. So it's kind of scary, right? So there were no spots. I found out later they had sold our military cell spots to our allies. So to put their helicopter pilots through. So we had Saudi Arabia, Norway. We had pilots from other other militaries, and I think it was the Norwegians or the Germans that we had, they actually, they were allowed to drink beer during lunch. Like we're new, right? As pilots. It was funny. I found out that out after I got in though, our government had sold some spots. And so we didn't have any spots the first month my packet went. So the second month it's like do or die, right? You fingers crossed, toes crossed. I found out I got, I got one, they had two spots and I got one of those two spots that month. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't know there were only two spots in the entire nation. I didn't know that, but I got one of those two spots that month. Those are crazy odds, aren't they? (laughs) You know, I I firmly believe that when we believe in the vision of where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, like when we have that kind of foresight of seeing and we believe in that, we're not meant to know the odds. Like the odds just feed our doubts. And I didn't know that it was really was that competitive or hard. I just knew this is what I was supposed to do. So I just kind of stayed true to having that vision. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went to basic training. So back then it's, it's a little different now, but I went to basic training eight weeks, traveled from Fort Jackson, South Carolina to Fort Rucker, Alabama for Warren Officer Candidate School. Now back then that was one of the toughest schools they were letting the women into because there was there was only one standard, right? The physical standards were the men's standard, not the women's. And we had to, all the women had to meet the same standard as, as the men. So it's a six week course. And in that six week course, we started with seven women out of like 48 students and only two of us graduated. So the others all washed out, which because of the, and mainly because of the physical standards. So eventually as the pressure to put more women into flight school got higher, they did relax some standards and create like a physical fitness standard difference yeah. for men and for women. But when I went through, I had, I had to push myself harder physically than I'd ever push to meet all the same physical standards, the run times, the push ups. I remember being, it's, I mean, this is July in 
southern Alabama and I'm doing middle of the day, two, three o'clock in the afternoon in the peak of the heat and we're doing jumping jacks. I remember losing count at 150. You know, we're still doing jumping jacks and you just, you just totally go into a zone where you don't even feel your, it's like an out of body experience where you don't even feel your body anymore because it's just the pain is beyond what you physically think you're capable of. So yeah. Yeah. So you haven't even got to flight school yet. That's just getting further wireless apart. This is getting, this is getting to there. And now, now you go through Warren officer candidate school and they actually send you to dunker training. They put you in a strap, you into a frame of a, a aircraft and they drop you into a deep pool. So they drop you into this deep pool and they, and you have to swim out. Like you have to be able to get out and swim out. They have scuba, scuba divers in the air standing by so no one gets hurt. Right. But you have to be able to pass dunker training and then they send you to an escape and evasion school. So where you have to go through the full escape and evasion school before they'll let you get to flight school. But when I was in, which was pre 9-11, right? So that's part of the reason they've made it more difficult to get into an aircraft so quickly. And so, and they don't want you to get hurt. Like they had people going to Dunker, depending on where you were stationed, then they would send you to Dunker school, right? Yeah. Depending on where you were stationed, they would send you to escape and evasion school. And but then, then they had people getting hurt after the military spends close to a million dollars of flight training time on you. Yes. So they, they said, this isn't making sense. We need to. <laughs> yeah. So they really want you to do all that now. They do all that training before you get to flight school. So if you're injured. Boom which would really, really suck, right? Because you're there to be a pilot. And if you get injured in one of those other bodies of study in those other courses, then you could lose your spot in flight school. So when I went in, I'd only been in, if you do the math, eight weeks basic training, a week of transition in between to move and in process. And so nine weeks, then the six weeks of Warren Officer Candidate School. So I'd only been in the military 15 weeks. Wow. And the next Monday after graduating candidate school, because I graduated, I graduated high in the class, I got to start candidates. I got to start flight school the next Monday. Everybody else got two weeks off. So (laughs) that was my reward. So I started flight school the following Monday. So literally the 16th week of being in the military, I am starting flight school. Yeah. Wow. They they don't do it like that anymore. (laughs) So pile of training and ultimately sort of Captain Blackhawk. Tell us about sort of those experiences in in command of an aircraft and kind of the missions you flew, those sort of challenging moments that you found yourself in. Yeah. So I did flew Hueys in flight school and then got my Blackhawk transition course. And so they do the basic kind of training and then you get to your first assignment. So mine was at Upstate New York, 10th Mountain Division in Fort Drum. So a pretty considered a very tough assignment. Oh. Like 10th Mountain is known for being kind of rugged and the weather is pretty <laughs> brutal, yeah. cold. The U.S. Army formation that's actually quite well renowned and has had sort of significant service in a whole lot of those hot places that uh, the U.S. forces have been in the last 20 years. Yeah. So they had just gotten back from Somalia yeah. when I got there. So we, were all, we weren't operational for any kind of tours at first when I first got there because we had just gotten back and they were refilling the unit and retraining the unit. So I got there and at first I was with what's called general aviation support, which means basically a little bit of everything. So we had three main platoons in our unit. So one was military intelligence, one was general aviation support. So basically whatever was needed. And the third was VIP. And of course, the most experienced pilots were flying the VIP missions. So I started off in general general aviation 
aviation support, flew multi-ship command and control was one of our big missions that we had. Our company within our battalion, our company, we all had a higher clearance uh-huh. that we had to get yeah. because we were the VIPs and the intelligence. So even though it was general service support, I also had to have a higher security clearance. Yeah. So we flew command and control. Well, back then <laughs> we didn't have satellite radios and GPS and everything. So this was in the, in the nineties. And so we had a giant radio set in the back of the helicopter with seating that wrapped around it in all four directions around this big rectangular box. And that's where the generals and their communication aid would sit. And they would actually direct the battlefield from the air because they needed line of sight for the radio contact. So that was my first big mission that I flew a lot of was what we call command and control. From that, we would sometimes do multi-ship where we'd fly the general or you know, brigade commander or someone from a distance and follow. So we would trail them so they could see what was going on in front of them or below. We would do like range overflies. So if they were doing a live fire exercise, we would fly overhead and observe and let them see as well. Yeah, Stuff like that. Of course, now with GPS and satellite, everything is everything with that's really changed. They don't have, they can do a lot of that from the ground. They don't have to be in the air and have that line of sight anymore. So that's the the battlefields really change from then. So that was one. And then I got moved to intelligence missions. Mm -hmm. So I was flying a lot of intelligence missions. So I would tell you about that, but you you know, (laughs) (laughs) so um, a lot of training for the intelligence missions in the States, because we trained as if we were going somewhere where we would be intercepting communications and we had linguists. We had linguists assigned to the aircraft with specializations in certain languages, I can't say. Yeah. And they, we would listen in on conversations. So they would have to create, you know, fake frequencies and things for training sure. yeah. to practice yeah. with. And then eventually then, it, well, in my two and a half years there, I got moved into VIP and I started flying the VIP. I think some of that was political because I was female and sure. they, wanted, they wanted the visibility of that. So I started flying some VIP. When I was flying VIP, the biggest thing that happened there wasn't so much a mission as I had to cut my hair. So when you, when you fly, you wear a helmet, right? So you've got a helmet on and as a woman, I had to keep your hair off your collar. So I'd have my hair in a ponytail or a braid in the back. But when you fly, you can't have that because you're the inner lining of your helmet is actually heated and molded to your skull. Yeah. For the shape of your skull. And because you don't want to have air that could let a fire through in a flash fire or anything like that. Sure. So it's it's a very tight fit. So which means the hair has to come out of a ponytail or bun or braid oh. to wear the helmet, which meant my hair was on my collar. So the and it was probably this length or a little bit longer. And he I remember the, one of the first times I flew our big general on the base, I got called into my commander's office afterwards that, that the general's aide had said he didn't want to see any hair on a female pilot. So because it was it was below my my helmet. Yeah. And it hit my collar. So technically it wasn't regulation. So my my commander is like, OK, yeah. you can either go cut your hair today or you don't fly the mission. Wow. So yeah. pilots do not like to be told you can't fly a mission. No, <laughs> so you're restricting our flight time and our job, right? So yeah. I was like, I was like, okay. So I went to the barber, like oh. the men's barber, and they cut my hair like a in a man's cut. So I had like my hair super short for the longest time because I wasn't going to not fly the mission. Yeah, it's funny how those 
kind of imposed standards can sort of shape a culture in a workplace like that, you know, and, you know, we wouldn't dream of actually getting in that direction right now, certainly my experience anyway. Yeah, but that wasn't was the 90s. I can, I can understand some practical yeah. aspects of it. Yeah. Yeah. There, I think it just depends. Um, I think, you know, there's still a lot of cultural influence, even mm-hmm. if it's not in the regulation, yeah. that they can say, I don't, I don't want to see that. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the commander could have pulled me off that mission without telling me. Yes, true. You know, he didn't have to tell me. He could have just pulled me off and said, yeah. "We need you. And we need you over here in intelligence." Boom. You know, he could have he could have done that very easily, and and instead he was straight with me. And he was up yes. front with me, and I I appreciated that. Yes. So, and, and to me, it's just hair. It's going to grow back. <laughs> <laughs> so, your military service. What was the catalyst for uh, transition out of the army? Yeah. So during Kosovo, our, my unit was deployed to Kosovo. When I well, so after Fort Drum, I was reassigned to Germany. Right. And while I was in Germany, we were supporting the Kosovo missions. We were one of the first wow. units there. And when we were supporting the peacekeeping missions there for the UN, they actually made me rear detachment commander, even though I was a warrant officer. I wasn't supposed to be a rear detachment commander. It was supposed to be a lieutenant. But they kind of felt, I think they felt bad for me because I was a single parent at the time. And uh, if I had deployed to Kosovo, I would have had to have sent my daughter to live with my ex-husband, the starter. And he, they didn't want to do that. So it, it wasn't, they weren't doing this for me though. Let's be clear. They were doing this because they liked my daughter. <laughs> like right. she was, because she went everywhere with me. So in Germany, we'd, we'd go have dinner, right? And she came with me because the child care center was closed. And, you wow. know, so she just went everywhere with me if I wasn't during working hours. And so everybody knew her and loved her and treated her like their adoptive, you know, daughter or sister. Yes. And, you know, she was five years old and would have full adult conversations because it was just her and I, and that's what she was used to. And so they kept me as rear detachment commander Number one, I was competent as a as an officer to be able to handle the spouses and the issues and things that were going up. And then secondly, because of my daughter. And then we went, I flew to Kosovo once a week and did, it was a courier for sensitive items and did our sensitive item inventory and yes. things like that. So my specialty, you only fly two or three days. But So most people think you fly every day. You don't. You only fly two or three days a week. The other days you actually have to have a job. So, and my job was procurement, inventory, contract negotiation, and things like that, which then really set me up for when I was injured during that time, because there was not enough doctors on staff and I received some negligent medical care. When I was injured and they were trying to fix me, I was moved over into our S4 shop, which is our logistics department at the battalion level and actually worked with our brigade and division levels on those big contracts and import export issues and things like that that were going on during the deployment and after. Yeah. The Black Hawk, as many would know, is a, there are many, 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 many countries that use that platform, the US Army, mm-hmm. US Marines, and sort of Navy variant within the US Navy and other navies is significant. And so mm-hmm. the logistics behind supporting that airframe is significant, isn't it? So that role is pretty pretty fundamental to making stuff work. Yeah. And what I found stepping into it again as a warrant officer is that the lieutenant about to be promoted to captain that was in that role wasn't really good at paperwork. <laughs> so yeah. Within a very, very small amount of time, I figured out that the paperwork was not being done well. And I went through and cleaned it off. (laughs) 
And because of that, the enlisted that worked for him in that department, they were all like very kind to me because I made them, I made things easier for them because everything was squared away and tightened up. And then the soon to be captain that was in that shop and had that official role, he got to go fly. He got to take my flight time and take my flight spot. That way it didn't short the unit of pilot. So it ended, ended up working out okay. But having that... I mean, I spent eight months, nine months trying to figure out what was what was wrong with me and if it was permanent, if they could fix it and during that injury and during that time and that time I spent working in the logistics shop and doing the S4 duties, it allowed me to have the experience I needed where I walked right into a logistics procurement warehousing distribution center job in corporate America. Yeah, right. So- You've got a medical situation that's been partly, I said, well, I'm sensitive, caused by the bad healthcare within the military, and then you're, which forces you to leave. What was that like? You know, the transition under <laughs> circumstances that were kind of outside your control. I mean, horribly depressing, right? Yeah. I mean, anytime, I mean, for anyone listening, right? Anytime you have things happen that are beyond your control that change the entire trajectory of your future, I mean, I never flew again because of the injury. So I have inner ear and eustachian tube damage in this ear that yes, it has a, I have hearing loss and yes, I could get, I have could and do get tinnitus. And yes, I could get vertigo, which is the biggest issue, right? A pilot getting vertigo is not a good thing. (laughs) So very bad, very bad. My biggest regret is not the injury. My biggest regret is not knowing that was my last flight. You know, yeah, and like, wow. like when you're retiring and you know it's your last fight, you like cherish it and, you know, feel it and hold on to it. But, you know, I had a flight. I had a flight. I don't even remember. Right. It was a standard flight. So one of one of my last flights, we I flew with a, a commissioned officer who I was a very experienced co-pilot at the time. And I flew with a commissioned officer that was a pilot in command, but didn't fly very often. So he was inexperienced. So they put me with him and we did a overflight of all the big castles in Germany. <laughs> so that was a pretty cool flight. But it, I know it wasn't my last flight. I don't even remember my last flight. Yeah. But it was a pretty that was a pretty cool one to be yeah. towards the end. But it was devastating, emotionally, physically debilitating, right? Because I had to deal with getting vertigo, having tinnitus, having hearing loss. But it was also, I think, more so emotionally debilitating. And I came home from my serving and came back to Texas and didn't know who I was. I think that's the biggest thing is the loss of identity. I was not only had lost my identity as a pilot, but I had lost my identity as a soldier, as a service person, plus adding the pilot piece in. And I, I didn't know who I was. Mm. I mean, I, I was very fortunate that I was a single parent and I could, I kind of latched on tight to the identity of I'm, I'm a mom. Okay. I'm a mom. I'm going to focus on being a mom. Right. But I think we don't talk enough in society about how much our job creates our identity versus understanding and knowing who we are as a person that creates our identity. And I think that that for me came more in entrepreneurship. Yeah. So it's, those are really interesting comments from my perspective because a couple of things. One is not being able to celebrate that was your last flight. I get that. You know, I had the privilege of being able to kind of celebrate the end of service when I left. And But when you're forced to do that, you know, it's actually, as you say, it's sort of the, there's that loss of identity. And, you know, while many of the 
self-help books and gurus around the world would talk about, you know, that you need to have your own identity, not make it about your job. Well, no, the reality of military service is there is a lot of identity that comes from that uniform you wear, the role you have, and those missions that test you personally. They are part of who you are. And so that even, transition is significant. Yeah, and even the camaraderie. Yeah, absolutely. Like all of your friends are in the military. Yes. And your coworkers all have the same training as you. So there's a higher level of trust. Yeah. There's a higher level of understanding. And you know you're going to move soon. If you're yeah. not going to move soon, the other person's going to move soon, right? Because it's a, yes. every two to three years, you're moving somewhere new. And so you make you bond faster and yes. you make more friends. The hardest part of transitioning from the military to civilian, in addition to the loss of personal identity, was the fact that everyone I met already had friends they'd gone to school with or college with, and they didn't, weren't looking to make new friends. Yes. And it was really hard to not have any kind of support system yeah. coming out. And I can, I can see why a lot of servicemen and women struggle now coming home. They, you've lost your identity of, of that, but also there's an isolation where there's, you know, unless you're moving back to the community you grew up in where you know people, I didn't, I didn't know anyone. Yeah. Even moving back to the community in which you grew up in is challenging because you're very different when you come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I love those thoughts. I really appreciate that going there because that's not always easy to have those conversations. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> definitely a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the serendipity of, of that work you were doing inside led to a corporate job outside. Tell us about the corporate career and what you've been doing since uh, you left the yeah, so I did eight years in corporate over three different corporations, all around manufacturing. I did. I started off as a warehouse, an inventory manager, and then earned the respect of the of a union warehouse as a woman. Right, so earned their respect enough where when our warehouse manager was injured, they asked me to step in as temporary warehouse manager. So I did that. But when I did that, I also negotiated a promotion after that. I said, I'm not doing this more than six months just to get you through this. And then I want, this is the role I want. So they kind of helped build my own progression and negotiated my own progression from there. And that so with that, after the warehouse management, I was still over part of the warehouse, just not the whole thing. And then I also, so I was over inventory, part of the warehouse and purchasing then after that. So all that moving up from a inventory manager in five years. So became over the over purchasing was basically the second in command to the VP of logistics. One day the VP of logistics looks at me and he, I, I'm like, so what's next for you, right? They're getting ready to open up a VP. Log so he was VP logistics Dallas. This is a multinational company and they were getting ready to create a brand new position, VP logistics, North America, which would have been over our Mexico plants, our U S plants and our Canadian facilities. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm 36 years old and VP. Why would I want to take on the all of North America and travel more and add more. I'm good right where I am. And I sat there and thought, they're never going to promote me over you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I knew, I knew I was like stuck. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't going to go any further from that. So at that point, I'd already been getting headhunted, headhunter calls because I had a good reputation in the industry. And I'd been getting headhunter calls and I'd been turning them down. And so after that phone call, the next one that called, I said, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I got headhunted to another company, another manufacturing company. I found out the grass is not always greener. The pay was higher, but the grass was not always greener. I found out that they were doing disreputable things yeah. and unethical practices. 
and hiring illegals and falsifying documentation and things that were not good, not good. So I started not even a year there. I started discreetly looking for another job. One of the companies I had interviewed with, even though I told them my current boss doesn't know, right? They called for a reference. And I left when I got back from that interview back in the office, which I had told them I had a dentist appointment. When I got back into the office that day, all my belongings were packed up in boxes and sitting outside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from my office. So I'd never been fired before. So anyone else been fired? Yeah, I'd never been fired before, <laughs> right? Not a good feeling. Um, I would have left them. And the thing that really annoyed me with that is I would have given them two weeks notice. I would have left them in great shape. I would have done everything to make it a smooth transition. And they chose to do this, right? So got home that night and that softly quiet job search became a roaring <laughs> Right. So that night I pulled an all nighter mm. and I did like nine customized resumes, nine customized cover letters, all tailored for each job that I was applying for. And within two days had two phone calls. Cool. So I knew I was going to be okay. And both those phone calls were closer to my home. So the great thing with that, um, I ended up getting offers from both and got to choose and it was both were pay increases. And so I took the better of the two, both location-wise and travel, and it was an international commodity manager. So I was handling vendor relations in the international markets was my specialty. Yeah, wow. And so I was tra traveling to Japan and China, and my biggest vendor was in Lyon, France, and got to travel a lot, so, which was really cool. And coming, just having lived in Germany, it wasn't scary for me at all to be by myself and travel. So they, they liked that. And I did, I did really well there, but because I was only now t five, 10 minutes from my house versus the previous job, I was an hour. I was able to get involved with my children's PTA in school. And so I, as I got involved, people found out I was a helicopter pilot Yes, <laughs> and they started asking me to come speak. Okay. They said, yeah, well, well, you come speak to the school and or to the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or this group or this group. And they kept asking me. And every time I did one, word got out. People were giving out my phone number and I was getting five more phone calls. So I said yes to some when I could schedule wise. And I said no to a lot of them because I'm traveling and working in a corporate job. And one day I'm saying no to one of them and they say, well, we'll pay you. Shut the door. I could get paid to do this. Yes, right. like I, had no, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Like I knew Zig Ziglar, right? John Maxwell, Zig Ziglar. I knew the big ones, right? Of course got paid, but I had no idea there was a whole industry of being a speaker. Mm. And so I was like, okay, how much will you pay me? Right. Yeah. And they're like, we'll pay, we'll pay you $500 for a 45 minute lunch. All right. I could take a day of vacation and do that. Okay. Definitely. That's more than I made an hour in my corporate job. So I did that. And what happens? More phone calls, <laughs> this time for paying speaking engagements, right? I'm getting yeah. phone calls. And again, I'm having to turn a lot of them down because I'm working in a corporate job. Three months later, I walk into a division meeting. Our CEO from our Sweden headquarters had flown in to give us the state of the company address, the annual address. And I'm sitting there and as he gives the address, he puts up slide one. It was the state of the economy. Now, this is January, 2009. What was the state of the economy like, right? Yeah. Not good. It was a big, it was a big downward, downward yeah. trend on the hard graph yeah. that's on that slide, you know? And so we're, all, and we knew that things had slowed down some, but we were still running production and everything. And then he puts up slide two, four words. 
you're all laid off. Yeah, wow. What a way to tell people. Yeah, laid off 250 50 people with a two-page PowerPoint. And we had no idea. We were running full production the day before. Like, we had no idea that this was happening. People are screaming. People are crying. I mean, it, people are hysterical. And I'm sitting, I just sat there and went, I think I know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So they came to me and they said, Elizabeth, all, you know, you could leave today with a severance, or if you stay to the end and help us close the plant in the next six months and help us negotiate us out of these multi-million dollar contracts, we'll give you the bon- the severance you get today, plus a bonus, plus your salary during this time frame. <laughs> but you have to stay to the very end. You can't like take another job in between in the middle of the six months and leave us in the lurch, right? So you have to stay to commit to staying till the very end. And I'm sitting there going, I know my end date. I could say yes to speeches. I can... Oh, and they didn't want me to travel anymore because they didn't want to spend the money on travel. So you have to stay home and be home every night (laughs) and to negotiate with your international vendors. because I was the only one who handled the international market and to negotiate with your vendors. We really want you to use this new website that just came out called Skype. Yeah. (laughs) So, or the vendors had to come to us in which case some did, but it was like, I, I now had time every evening to be able to work on my my book and my website and the things I needed to do and to study the industry. Mm. And yeah. that's what I did. I studied yeah. I studied the thinking industry, just like I studied aviation back at the beginning, right? Yes. So I studied yeah. the industry and figured out what I needed to do. Well, that's fascinating. That sort of concept, <laughs> that skill I guess you've had, which is to to analyze, work out what you've got to do and then take that next step and get on a path. I wonder take you back if I could just to that time in the military and that corporate career what did you learn about leadership in that time frame that you go that's actually shaped how I think as a leader so I think from you know to bring in your podcast theme right the front line to the boardroom Mm. and even now right as an entrepreneur and a business owner I think in all three one of the biggest things I learned was to be time on target So when it comes to planning any kind of mission as a pilot or as even as a leader, as a project or anything you're working towards, it's, you know, it's the same begin with the end in mind, but it's more than that. So beginning with the end in mind and then what do I, if in order to be there, where do I need to be here and here and here? So for a mission, obviously it's minute by minute. Like if we're here, if we need to be here, then we need to hit this checkpoint at this time frame. We need to be flying at this speed, right? So I mean, everything down to the, to the minute of where we needed to be for a mission. As a leader, I think it needs to be more like that with your vision. I think a lot of companies, we look at our vision in the boardroom and we look at our vision as, well, let's do 20% more than last year. And we don't really look long-term. No, We don't look far enough out. And because of that, we make smaller incremental changes and smaller incremental growth and have that smaller levels of growth than what we could have if we looked a little further out and had a broader vision. So what I would say is look out 10 years, look out 20 years, Right. Mm. We might not know the technology we're using, but you should have an idea of where you want to be and then go to half. So at 20 years, if I wanted this, then at 10, I need to be at this. And then at five, I need to be at this. And then at two and a half, I need to be at this. And then this year I need to be doing this and then Mm. back. And I think that's one of the skills I talk about as a pilot. We would take complex missions and break them down into sequential steps. Yes. And that's something I don't see many business owners really doing. Yeah. And 
that approach not only takes the skill to do that, but it's also that persistence to be able to work through because, you know, taking a 10 or 20 year vision, but then to work out what are those waypoints that you've got to hit in those timeframes actually requires thinking and work and dealing with ambiguity in that complex environment, which business is. Yeah. And businesses are now changing. I mean, if you just look at technology changing and businesses are changing at such a rapid pace that the vision has to be such that obviously there's flexibility, right? But it also has to have have that tangibleness to it of the things that you can control mm-hmm. within that time frame. Yeah. So, yeah. and there is there's a persistence in that. And I think it's a muscle. Like the more yeah. you like think things through that way, like now I can think through like, okay, I want this. And I can think through in seconds all the steps and realize I'm missing a step here. That's not going to, I'm not going to get there. Right. And so identifying the the gaps yeah. in that planning and everything helps you so, get there. Yeah. You're in demand, motivational speaker, speaking, you know, largely in the US, but also overseas as well. What are the key things you're telling people in the business world right now that you think are important for people to, to latch on to? So I think right now, especially post-pandemic, right, I think we're struggling with an inspiration and motivation issue. I think everybody's come out of this pandemic exhausted. Mm-hmm. Physically, emotionally, mentally, people are depleted. And because they've worked from home or the so there's been so much change they couldn't handle and adjust to and adapt to. And, and I hear it a lot. I'm getting hired a lot because they're like, we just need to get some spark and motivation back in our people. We need the fire back in our people and it, the good fire, right? The yes. internal fire, <laughs> the internal fire. And we need to find that back. And, you know, sometimes sometimes you're so stuck in it, you don't really see the things that you can control and the things that you can do. And so one of the biggest things I talk about is how, how you show up. Like I talk about personal leadership and that you're responsible for you, no matter what goes on around you, no matter what goes on in in the media and the news and, and the world around us, you still have to be in charge of you and that you're in the pilot seat of your life and your future and your actions and your behaviors and your beliefs every single day. And there's no autopilot in that. Mm. Yeah, I love that concept. Yeah, we do need to be the pilot with the hand on the stick, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And I relate that. And then I teach the audience how to fly a helicopter, right hand, left hand, feet. I get the whole room leaning together. It's so awesome to see the whole yeah. room leaning together to the right, to the left, forward, back. And they all lean in the same in unison together. No, sir, you over there, the other way, this way. Okay, that, that yeah. way. So we all fly together and creates this rapport building, shared common experience yeah. in that presentation. And then again, I relate it back to them. Like you decide where you go, how high how low, how fast, how slow to the yeah. right or to the left, which yeah. way you go. I think what I, when you when you're saying that, what I was thinking is actually the other key point in organizational culture, particularly if you're trying to get that motivation spark back, is actually having common language about where you're going and also how you work together as a team. And that's something we've learned at the Glotteries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's that's so foundational for your if you're talking about apples and you're talking about oranges you're, it's hard to it's yeah. hard to meet other than in, in the fruit salad yeah but no i think we could do a better job i think again with this exhaustion that we're we're com- the fatigue change fatigue i've heard it called a lot is that spending more time on boarding people 
mm-hmm. and making sure mm-hmm. that they feel included in the culture and the language and the, the like the military has acronyms for everything, right? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, you don't know those all on day one. Oh. So it takes time to learn those. And I think our corporations and organizations need to identify and a lot of times they don't even realize they talk in shorthand. Yes. And so identifying that that language and being able to communicate kind of like, here's the glossary. Yeah. Here's the index and glossary for our of navigating our association. Yeah. There's certainly something about, you know, when we go into a new organization, you talk about induction, you know, that that first experience can be a real key determinant in how people experience the culture in that organization. But how quickly they also step into trust in the organization to then give of themselves. And if we do that right, then we have a greater chance of achieving what you've talked about, which is that bigger vision of where we're going to go. Yeah. So one of um, my son is 19 and recently had a job. The first, after his first two weeks there, they gave him a $200 credit in their online store to buy clothing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how cool is that immediate brand, you know, branding and recognition for him to wear at work, but also for him to, to be trusted, right. To pick out his own from their store and everything. I thought having something like that as part of their onboarding process was really, really a neat thing that they did that I would use as an example of how you can help, help people take ownership of being part of a culture. Yeah. Elizabeth, it's been fantastic to catch up. You're on one side of the world, I'm on the other, different ends of the day. But thanks so much for taking the time. I want to finish up, if we could, with some of our rapid-fire questions. So if I can get you to fill in the blank. Uh, the first question is leadership is blank. Foundational. Cool. What's your go-to book on leadership? My favorite book on leadership is a John Maxwell book. It's The 15 Laws of Personal Growth. Yes. is my yes. favorite book. And there is a one particular passage in there. The first time I read it, it made me cry. But okay. that's not a rapid fire answer. So, <laughs> right. As I say, <laughs> sometimes the, the questions might be rapid fire, but the answers don't have to be necessarily. Well, Jan, John Bottas on the side, John Maxwell is such an influential person when it comes to thinking about leadership. He was the person that actually I, I caught up a couple of times, but he was the guy 25, 30 years ago that inspired me to pay more attention to leadership. So, yeah, great to bring yeah, up his I'm, name. I'm now on his faculty and actually teach oh, wow. speakers. How to be better and get marketed and booked to speak for his faculty now. Yeah, which is wow. A pretty cool full circle, right? So yes. Yeah. Be a part of it. Yeah. Next question. I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. Better conversational skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a value, isn't there, to be able to engage in a conversation, connect with people? Mm-hmm. I was pretty much an introvert. So it was. I kind of like to people watch more and I think I, I have to force, I still have to force myself to put myself out there. Right. But I wish I'd done it sooner. Yeah. You get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company. What are the first words to that person? It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to figure it out. Cool. And last question, go to quote on leadership. that's had the most influence on your leadership style or um, career. Well, I'll have to go back to John, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's a mentor of mine. So uh, it's funny because John says everything rises and falls on leadership. Mm-hmm. But then he says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Mm-hmm. And then if you tie it to another quote, he says influence is communication. 
So I think everything really rises and falls on communication. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. Mr. McCormick, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Wonderful to have you. Look forward to catching up with you sometime soon. Yes, I'd, I'll be happy to come to your, your side of the world soon. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.